0: Welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. hope you enjoy this session. So today I'm really excited and i don't think i've been that excited to be speaking to someone on my podcast as today um and i you'll, you'll obviously you'll understand why in a minute when i speak with with helen but today i'm speaking to dr helen Streets. so um helen used to be an academic and now is an honorary academic but she was an associate professor um, and she's now running and directing the positive schools initiative with the online provision coming shortly and soon and she'll tell you more about this um and she's also um director of contextual well-being um and on her website contextualwebwellbeing.com i'll i'll put all the details on the on the website um helen thank you so much for uh, speaking with me all the way from australia um i'm delighted to be here with you
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. It's, it's it's lovely to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Wonderful.
0: So, um, Helen, I was recommended your book by one of my podcast uh, interviewees recently, um, because we were talking about um well-being and, and and I was saying how I've always said there is not no for me, there's no silver bullet and there's no magic wand. Um and as societies and as human beings, we tend to be slightly lazy and we just want the shortcut, the easy sort of like tell me the one thing that will sort this out. Um and then, you know, obviously I I was introduced to your book contextual well-being um so do you wanna you know overall sort of tell us about you know where you you got to before writing this book so you know before contextual well-being what what led you to writing the book and to doing the work you're doing
1: um Sure, I think just to sort of pick you up on that idea about people um, looking for a silver bullet, I, I think that the, one of the difficulties we have when we like want to support wellbeing in young people is to think of wellbeing as a sort of single outcome or, or a particular um, uh, thing in itself and um, and because of the way we sort of conceptualize and understand well-being we therefore think that there must be some sort of linear path towards it to attain that outcome so we're sort of looking at well what is the formula here and what are the ingredients and um, so I but we'll sort of get we'll come back to that but sort of in, in relation to your question so I've uh, always been interested in social psychology and um, my PhD was very much in, in under the umbrella of social psychology, which means I've always been interested in how our identity, who we are, how we relate to the world comes from our influences within the world, comes from our social context and how we interact with that. Um, and I've been particularly interested in applying our uh, understandings of social psychology to mental health and wellbeing. Um, so when I arrived in Australia now 20 years ago it seems a very long time um, then I was doing a lot of research to look at how our understandings of the goals we want, the things we want in life, how our motivations, the things that drive us to, to seek certain pathways in life, how those are linked to our mental health and well-being. And that took me into schools because I was interested to know what was happening with kids in particular. And when I started to work in schools, I immediately became aware, I didn't have children at that time. I immediately became aware that there were, here are all these educators who are really concerned about the poor mental health of a lot of their students. They're feeling really lost in many ways about how to support these kids or indeed how to support themselves and how to um, address mental health issues. And so that became of interest to me. I, I was surprised that there was so much known in the clinical world and the academic world that didn't seem to have reached um, what was happening in education. And there seems to be just this massive void between the two. And so from, from that sort of understanding, I started working a little bit in schools and running some workshops, just helping teachers to understand, for example, what is, na- what is it to be naturally nervous and, as opposed to what is it to, to have a, a level of anxiety that's a clinical concern? And what are the sort of indicators you might be looking for between, say, someone having a bad week and someone possibly being depressed, et cetera. And, and that sort of led to thinking about launching a conference, uh, which we, I did with Neil Porter, my partner, and we, we called this conference the Positive Schools Conference. And the idea of it was to find a way where we could get academics working in the area, clinicians, educators that were interested in supporting mental health and well wellbeing, and get them to talk to teachers, to educators, but to do that in a way that, that meant that they weren't just putting up graphs and tables and talking about how terrible the situation was or how poor kids' mental health was, because I thought, well, teachers know that, and that's just a really sort of heavy burden to take on board and isn't necessarily that helpful. So we, we made it really clear from the outset that we wanted all our presenters to be looking at solutions and saying, well, what, can, what practical concrete ideas, strategies can people take away to support better well wellbeing, better mental health, rather than just thinking about um, the actual statistics of, in terms of how bad the problem might be. And we also wanted to make sure that our presenters were engaging and that they were actually going to engage their audience emotionally, not just with lots of facts and figures as academics love to do. So Mm. that people would actually sort of follow what people were saying and be inspired by that and on board with that, rather than sort of falling off their chairs in the stupor of thinking, gosh, I know this is important, but I'm just, you know, can't, can't relate to it. Um, and the, the first event was so successful that we we rapidly expanded, and in the last few years we've run events around Australia every year, and also in the Southeast and around Southeast Asia. And over all of this time, I've 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 had the pleasure of, through my own research and writing, but also through having met so many different presenters and seen so many different programs, and worked with now so many schools uh, around the world, are really getting an understanding of the fact that they're. Are so many programs out there that come from a strong evidence base, but they aren't working very well in schools. And it seems to me that as much as we've really progressed to thinking well-being is important and wanting to support positive mental health, not just treat problems, there is a huge lack of understanding still about what well-being is per se, and how we might effectively realistically. And equitably, which is so important to me, I actually understand that. Um, and, and there seem to be some missing pictures. So I wrote contextual wellbeing as a, as a way of sort of drawing together all my thoughts about what was going on in education. But I didn't want to create some sort of you know negative book that just said, oh, well, they're doing it all wrong, or well, this isn't right, or this is a misunderstanding. But rather to write something that said, well, how about if we did it this way? This could be a really positive outcome. And to me, I suppose that the biggest things I wanted to shift in people's thinking was their understanding of wellbeing from an individual to a social perspective and to really realizing that, that um, if you want to do something effective to support mental health and wellbeing, you have to create a better reality for young people. You can't simply do that in a theoretical way or within the confines of the wellbeing lesson.
0: Yeah. And that to me, so it's, it's, uh, this is where I'm at in terms of my research. So I literally fell into my research because I, I ran my own business and then went back to HE uh, in 2014. And to say that I was horrified by what I came back to is an understatement. Um, and I went back in the same environment. So for me, it was like, well, what we are doing hasn't changed drastically. So there must be something else. And because I'm quite curious, it's all started. <laughs> digging deeper and you know i i love your your comment about language so being a linguist myself um the first thing that really Surprise me is the use of mental health in the UK, for example. So, in the UK, mental health is used as meaning mental ill health, but people don't say that. When, you know, if you look at mental health, mental health, you know, looking at the World Health Organization is actually quite a positive. You know, we all have mental health. Um, yeah. And in the same way, you know, the, the, with well being, so I'm, I've seen a shift in terms of well being being used rather than mental health but to me it's about uh oh go and do some yoga or do some reiki and then you know or or whatever and then you'll you'll feel better um and i'm far more interested in the more systemic and the more sort of embedding of the well-being so for me you know last year we did the research with our first year students where we just literally said you're transitioning to university, I don't want to talk about teaching to test, I don't want to tell you about your exams, we're going to look at fostering, you know, uh, positive relationships, sense of belonging, um, autonomy, and um, uh, what's the other one I'm missing, so positive relationship,
1: uh, You mean in terms of self-determination theory?
0: Yeah, competence, yeah, and then the the autonomy in the and the autonomous motivation in the middle, and that has made such a difference to the students that actually this year a lot of the teachers who are teaching the second years are saying, ask about the exams, and that to me I'm like, yes, right, okay, we're starting to sort of change
1: things. Yeah,
0: but yeah, so what I'm thinking, I'm wondering is, you know, that contextual and that sort of systemic, so to me, we focus and rightly on young people because we want them to be well, but we, we're not really looking at the whole system right, at all the stakeholders in, in education, would you, would you agree with that, do you think that there's not enough of a systemic approach.
1: Um, Well, I I think there's sort of different questions within that question. So when I when I'm talking about systemic approach or a contextual approach, I'm I'm thinking that for for any person to consider their own well-being or indeed the well-being of others, you have to look at how that person is interacting with and connecting with the world around them and what what their uh, sense of reality is like. And you mentioned belonging and part of that Uh, connection if done in a healthy way creates a sense of belonging but it's also about how we connect with what we do which is about engagement so that's sort of very much it's that sort of way of connecting and understanding that and understanding how we can create um, an environment that supports healthy connection connection in in a way that is authentic that allows people to feel their needs are being met and you mentioned those three needs from self-determination theory of competency and relatedness and autonomy and they are so vital not just for motivation but for our sort of well-being in action um, I think absolutely there's a need for stakeholders for for um, policymakers for um, a, the a educational community in a broader sense to come on board with our understanding of how better to support young people because certainly you, you otherwise you end up in a position where you feel educators, that they have lots of accountability but uh all the time but they're not given responsibility and they're not um they're always sort of operating within the confines of of legislation that other people have have made but that's a sort of different question i think i suppose what i'm most interested in is thinking how can people who are uh in schools whether they're school leaders educators allied professionals how can they ensure that the context is as healthy as it can be, so that we are supporting young people in terms of allowing them to feel connected, engaged, have a sense of belonging. I mean, you, you, you mentioned, you know, about that sort of flippant way of looking at well-being as saying, you know, go off and do a yoga session. And um, I think that it's not necessarily that people would all, always assume that yoga, doing yoga is gonna make you happy or feel well, but there is absolutely, there, there is a sort of sense that Oh, people who have well-being tend to do this, 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 and this. So therefore, if we get everyone to do this, 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 and this, then they'll all be happy too, uh, or they'll have a greater sense of well-being. And that, of course, doesn't equate uh, the things that people with strong well-being do don't, doesn't necessarily mean that those things create well-being, uh, certainly not across the board for everyone. No.
0: And I guess it's also possibly because we're all unique individuals, right? And that, for example, I've got a friend who... Um, to relax, get those ultra marathons. And I can't think of anything worse, personally, I would find that really stressful. Um, So I think that would put me more in stress
1: than in Yeah, But that's possibly, so yeah, we're all unique in in what activities we'd like to engage in, or the people that we really sort of resonate with and connect with. we're all the same in the sense that we have those same key needs that that we want met. And um, so, for you, you know, and, and for me, I have to agree, running a marathon would not be meeting my needs very well. But in part, that's because I feel that I wouldn't be very competent at that at all. Um, and so, that's not really satisfying that need. I, I don't know how well it would satisfy my um, my other needs as well. But for some people, you know, if, if that satisfies their needs for feeling like that they have got ownership over what they're doing, that it was a free choice, that they have positive relationships or secure attachments when they're going in that sort of arena of life and they feel that they're making progress, even if they might not be, they don't have to be winning or getting the fastest all time marathon, but they feel that that journey is allowing them to develop as a person. Then that's going to be something that they enjoy doing, especially if they find that thing intrinsically interesting in it itself. And that obviously is important as well. Um, so yes, so we all have sort of different things that we like to do but we have those same key needs and it's that which is so important so that you can have a class full of kids that are all different but they all have those same key needs and so once you start to understand that when a child is disengaged or struggling you can start to say well what needs are not being met what are their unmet needs in this situation as opposed to necessarily thinking what's wrong with them Mm -hmm. Or, um, or, or giving them some sort of formulaic
0: idea of how how to feel better yeah how to to mend them um because they're they're broken which yeah. is what yeah, yeah. that these all see so can you talk us through what these young people need um helen um because obviously you and I have you know, we've done some research so we we understand you know that we talked about um DC and Ryan's self-determination theory that might be good to also express that for, for the listeners who may not know it so would you be willing to, to talk us through the what, what young people need what we all need in fact as human beings right
1: well yeah Edward DC and Richard Ryan's theory is self-determination theory um, Suggests that we have three key needs that have to be met in order for us to develop self-determination, intrinsic motivation, and now I think they would very much say, and I certainly would say, well-being, because really uh, we're saying that these these needs have to be met for us to be engaged in the things that we do, to have a sort of um, to find intrinsic rewards in the things we do, to find the things we do rewarding is in and of themselves. And, and when you are in that state of being, when you're, when, you're, when you're loving what you do and you have energy for what you do, that really is well-being in action in, in many ways. And so the theory suggests that these three key needs are firstly relatedness, which is about having positive relationships with the people around you. They don't have to be right there in the room when you're doing something, but you have to feel that you do have those secure attachments to have that need met. And then secondly is the need for um, autonomy and so autonomy here we're talking about student voice which gets mentioned a lot um, in agency is something that's mentioned an awful lot in education nowadays and that's really i think a lot to do with autonomy in action um, but we're also talking about things like creativity and play and generally having choice control and sense of ownership over your learning and we can certainly come back and talk a bit more about that, because I think a lot of schools nowadays would talk about how they want to give their students autonomy, but they do it in a way that doesn't take note of safety, psychological safety. And so they might ask all the students what they think, but the students feel there's only one right answer I can give. So, so that that has that's a sort of side note that, that that's a really important aspect of that topic. But then that third need is competency. And here we're not talking about getting certain outcomes or achievements, but rather a sense of progression, a sense of personal growth. And that could be socially and emotionally as much as academically. So you, and, and it could be learning something new. So you could meet with a group of great friends and you've got that lovely, authentic connection and that satisfies your need for relatedness. And, and you wanted to go out and have, and catch up with them. And you've got, feel you've got ownership over that. It feels creative, it feels playful. And the competency might come because you're learning about each other and you're learning about yourself so we're not necessarily talking about you know learning the capital cities of the world or facts or or mathematical concepts but rather that knowledge and that could be about self-knowledge and growth in many ways and so then the theory self-determination theory has been widely researched around the world in many many different uh, contexts um, applied to many different aspects of being and behaving. And it's, it's been found to be a really, really robust theory. And it's really very much a, a theory that understands that, that we are social beings and we need other people in our lives. So for me, it's a fantastic theory to form a basis of any wellbeing program within, within a social system. And of course, schools are social systems. So I refer to the theory a lot in contextual wellbeing and it it is a great framework or thinking about how best to support young people. Yes. Yeah, and, and
0: it is, it's just, it's really good. And what's been interesting in the research that I've done recently is that a lot of our students felt very positively, you know, that that they had developed the sense of belonging and uh, the autonomy, but they the bits that they felt the least they had developed was their sense of competence and their sense yeah. of motivation those two were those that they were reporting. Yeah. And and I was quite surprised when I went in that, that particular research because I really did not expect it. So oh, really?
1: um yeah what is it I mean is that very common that in the current system. I think, so. I think competency is the thing that we give least attention to. Um so I think I think with relationships we have to really start to help young people to better understand the difference between popularity and Mm. a sense of belonging and being authentically, vulnerably connected to people. Mm. Um, With autonomy, as I say, we really need to better understand psychological safety and and risk. Um, But when it comes to competency there, we have to really understand more about equity and have to, I think, really look at our policy and our practices in schools. And this I think is possibly more true for the UK than just about anywhere. And think about, are we trying to support young people in a way that allows all young people to feel a sense of their growing competency? And there are so many ways that we looked to try and, and, and get people to demonstrate and understand competency that are playing a zero sum game. So you can only really feel successful at the expense of other people feeling they're not. And that comes in all sorts of ways. So for example, in the US, you call it tracking, or streaming in the UK, I think you call it, or ability grouping, we might call it over here in Australia. Um, if you do that too early on, then immediately, um, for whatever reason you might do that to feel that you're teaching people who are more um, of a similar ability in a certain subject. And I, I get that reasoning, But what it tends to do is it tends to mean that the the kids in the lower streams have immediately been told you're not very good at this subject and that's gonna diminish their competency um, hugely. And there are are many other sort of reasons for not doing streaming and ability grouping, especially in young kids. And yeah, I see in the UK, um, it seems that within classes, reading groups come in pretty much straight away. Then we do things like, especially in the UK, you start school very, very early. Kids start school when they're very young and that schooling tends to be quite structured. So you're trying to teach kids how to read at a very young age. And that sort of comes from this belief that the more you do and the earlier you do it, the better you're gonna be as if education is a race and we have to sort of get on that race Mm -hmm. as as possible to get past the finish line as, as fast as possible. Whereas in reality, um, if you have too much structured time for young people, then you're taking away the opportunity to learn how to proactively engage with the world on their own terms, um, and that's about developing their own agency and autonomy through creativity and play, as well as developing all sorts of other skills like, that they need for improving their relationships and their relatedness and um, and, their, and also their autonomy, of course. So. So that then things like forced competition and that again, the UK is, is massively big, big on this, but so too are many, many other countries. Um, so too certainly is Australia that we have, uh, everything is turned into a competition. And certainly when you're doing something that's really simple, like trying to make, I don't know, a spaghetti tower or something, it can be fun to, to make it into a competition to raise the energy of that. But if you're doing something that's meaningful, uh, something that involves skill, um, then then forcing competition can be, rate for the kids that feel really already they're having their needs met they feel really competent and capable and they're also quite confident in maybe putting themselves on public show but for many kids who might feel that they're struggling a little bit having their needs met, or this isn't particularly their area or their subject it can be humiliating it can promote a huge amount of anxiety and it actually makes them less able um they you know they fall apart on the racetrack because yeah. they don't feel very confident. So, um, you know, there are many, many other things that I could name. I think rewards, um, certainly in the, in the US, I think more than any other country, we see um, bribes and consequences, punishments used in yeah. our classrooms and in our schools. You know, kids are given glitter pens and stickers and stars almost before they can sort of say, glitter pen, sticker or star. Uh, as if we feel that we're going to motivate them but that actually reduces their motivation it takes away the opportunity to to become intrinsically interested in the task they're doing because everything in them is, is focused now on trying to get the reward that in itself is a massive topic but you know these are just some examples of some of the many things we do in our schools that diminish many many kids overall senses of competency so but also there are a sense of autonomy and relatedness we're sort of so on the one hand, we're bringing in all these well-being programs, but on the other hand, we're, we're diminishing kids' opportunity to feel connected to their school environments. And, and it's no wonder that kids' well-being is struggling around, around the world. It's, you know, it, it really is no wonder. We, we really need to rethink what we're doing and play a longer game with, with our kids and think you know we're, we're trying to surely engage them in learning for the long term, not just to get them through the exam at the end of the term
0: yes i agree and you know what the, the question i just um i'm asking myself and sort of thinking about book three, what happens to the curious fun loving five-year-old who keeps asking why but mommy why mommy why where do they go because you know yes we know from from obviously looking at genetics and you know the the teenage brain that they are more likely to develop mental ill health but i think that's only part of the answer you know that's not the only answer and you know you're talking about the competitiveness it drives me crazy that they have to compete you know like in in the local school where my kids go why do you have to have like the best sort of um fancy dress or the best list because it's great if you're you know like or even sports day you know some kids love to compete so my eldest is very competitive very driven he loves it my youngest couldn't care less well you know it 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 means that the experience for both of them is very different right Um,
1: absolutely Absolutely. and I feel I think you know it's important that I to, to say here that I don't have a problem with with sporting competition at all and, and I think for kids who love sport, to play in competition can be uh, fantastically rewarding. And in many ways, playing, especially team sport, can be really good for, for kids' well-being. Mm-hmm. The, the problem I have with for, is forcing kids to compete. And, and, and not only is that harmful in so many ways in itself because of the competition, but you're also in terms of like then equating exercise with sport is, is a real problem as well. So how many kids, Leave school and they never do any exercise again, you know, because they, they think, oh my God, I don't want, I don't want, I hated that experience. I don't want to lose. I don't want to, because they're not thinking of, of fitness or health or fun. They're thinking it's about mm-hmm. competency and competition at all. And that's such a shame.
0: Yeah. And, the, you know, in your book, um, I love the, um, the part when you talk about from DA class to the more So, do you want to share that particular um story you know sort of the, the research that was done with the um the violin viol- what it was a violinist wasn't it playing the um yeah playing the violin do you want
1: to um are, are you referring to um oh yes yeah um yeah absolutely absolutely that yeah. so that was joshua Bell, um it's is is world renowned as, as a as a violinist, He's a classical violinist, and and does incredibly well. Um, and he uh, played in, I think it was Boston, to, in Boston Symphony called packed audience. Um, this is now about fourteen years ago, and he, uh, he his album was at the top of the classical charts. People paid up to a thousand, I think, US dollars for a ticket to to hear him play, to see him live, and um, it was a really hugely successful night and then the the Washington Post thought that they would do something that that might be fun and they uh, flew him to Washington that night, put him up in a hotel and the next day they took him in a taxi to a shopping mall and asked him to um, play a 45-minute set with his same violin, it's pretty much his same outfit, he dresses pretty casually uh, and put down a hat and just play as a busker to see what would happen with with no labeling or advertising or anything and people were curious to know how many people would stop and go oh my god listen listen to this violin it's how many people would give them money um what size size crowd would would be there and in so they put cameras all around the shopping center hidden cameras so that they could record what happened and you can actually seek this out online now so it's it's well worth looking at what and what they found was, um, so he played for this 45 minutes and he, and very, very few people even stopped. I think about six people stopped over the course of the whole 45 minutes. And there were people who were queuing up to have their lottery ticket checked and they didn't even turn around. And there were people that, that were just waiting and they didn't look up. Um, so that wasn't some, that everybody was rushing to be somewhere and didn't have time. And they found that, I think he made a total of $32 um, and somebody put in a, like a $20 bill or something. So, most of that came from one person. Uh, some One person or maybe two people recognized him, but otherwise, people just didn't pay attention. Um, and he, he fell, which was what, and so that's interesting. So on the one hand, what that's saying is when you put someone in a different context, when you put them in a context where you're saying, this is not anybody special, um, then people don't give them the same attention but more than that they don't perceive what they're looking at and hearing to be the same people weren't saying wow this is incredible Uh, and yet when people went to the symphony hall that's exactly what they were saying but also very interestingly um joshua himself felt very awkward he said he felt so so nervous when he went in because he he hadn't got a sort of buy-in from his audience. He wasn't going to play somewhere where he knew people already loved him and in fact paid a huge amount to see him. And that made him nervous. And then he, he played, played his first piece and some of the pieces he played was so well known, like Ave Maria, for example, everybody knows, I think. Um, and yet nobody clapped, there was nobody standing there cheering and that made him pause awkwardly before thinking, oh, well, I should go on then and play the next piece. So from his, of view it also felt so different and so I believe that that is a a great way of thinking about what streaming or um, you know tracking ability grouping is like for kids if you put kids in the A group then that's like Joshua playing at the symphony hall to an appreciative audience already those kids are feeling like pretty good at what they do and that they have a sense of competency and very often the audience, in this case, the teachers, that they will give them really creative extra things to do. So they build their sense of autonomy and um, and they will create positive relationships with them that are based on a sort of sense of appreciation and respect. And, um, and yet when you look at the kids in the lower group, that's more like playing in the subway in the, or in the shopping mall effort uh, and 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 you're going in there feeling not very competent and that immediately it's going to hamper your performance before you've even begun and you're not necessarily going to be given anything extra or creative to do because it's about focusing on the basic skill sets um so it, it really changes how you feel about yourself and, and and what you're doing and now for anyone who's sort of watching or listening to, to this and, and thinking um Skeptically, well, maybe all those people in the shopping center just weren't interested in classical music or Joshua, whereas there was a very sort of select audience at the symphony hall. Years later, they, 10 years later, they repeated the experiment, but this time they just put a sign outside the shopping mall saying it was Joshua Bell who was playing. And the shopping mall became so packed with people, you couldn't get in. And, and so, so that just shows that if people were told, hey, this is an A-class performer, it didn't matter if it was classical music or not. They wanted to look. They wanted to see that. So it's not just ha- tracking, screening, ability grouping doesn't just influence the kids in that situation. It also really changes the perceptions of the people judging that situation. And so I- I'd say educators need a greater awareness of that. Mm. Um, and they feel like they're making sort of objective decisions about kids' ability and their progress and their potential. They really need to be aware of how much the context. Is gonna influence what they see.
0: Yeah, yeah, and their response to the individual as well. I guess because it's, uh, I saw that with my youngest. My youngest during lockdown had more time to process information, and so. Could answer questions more effectively, I guess, and understood the concept, and so you know could then tell me about like Buddha, for example, and his whole experience, and I heard him for the first time. He's ten. Say twice during lockdown. I think I'm quite clever actually, and part of me was happy, but actually also broke my heart because I was just thinking, oh my god, you're ten, and you obviously used to think that you were not clever, you know. Define clever
1: difficult. because yeah. yeah. So yeah, well, I think I think you know it, teachers often they might who have reading groups early on, and I, I use that example because that tends to be the first sign of ability grouping we see. Uh, they think they're disguising it by having you know the I don't know the the tractors, the rabbits, and the fairies or whatever groups, but really the kids know they they know immediately, and we, we know that when it comes to reading. We read because of the content, not because we want to practice reading as adults, don't we? We don't think, oh gosh, I must practice 10 minutes of reading. Now you think I must read this book or read this, whatever it might be. And so we want to sort of really allow kids to see and understand, to experience the joy of reading. And that's about uh, experiencing the joy of picking up content, isn't it? So in in that sense, a good story, a story that a child engages with and once to find out what's gonna happen next is, is so much more powerful than a, a book that's set at the right ability in terms of word difficulty, sentence mm-hmm. structure, et cetera, et cetera. So it'd be much better to just simply have group books according to their subject area so that you can think, wow, you know, I'm really into, I don't know, outer space and I want a book that's all about planets, or I'm really into dinosaurs, I'm gonna read a book about dinosaurs, or I'm a Harry Potter addict and I'm gonna read that and whatever it might be. And finding a book that gives you the content you're looking for is going to keep you persevering and learning to read way beyond trying to match your ability to the text. Yeah, I, th- I think, and, and the kids who are struggling, obviously some kids have dis- difficulties with reading and, and they need extra help, or there's a lot of dyslexia, I think, uh, in schools and... But even so, they, these kids still need to find the pleasure and the joy of reading. So for them, it might be, well, how about starting with audio books so that they can hear stories that are at a level that they find great interest in, rather than being given books that they find so boring because they're struggling with the, with the words and the, the code of language. Not to say that they don't need that extra support and tuition, but finding a love of reading is, is again, about playing the long game and helping kids to feel that, they're in, that it's intrinsically interesting to read. And that they have a potential for growth and that they can take ownership over their choices and again but meeting those needs
0: yes and it's so important because again you know jack my younger started picking up books during lockdown and really got into one particular sort of genre of books and he's loving it and he's like please buy me the whole series and i want the next one and see what happens so that's really exciting yeah. um and and I was saying, well, your teacher has says we need to record when you're reading, and he went, no, I don't want you to do that because you're going to take the fun out of it. So please don't record when I'm reading. So I was like, right, okay. So I actually wrote to the teacher, please take it as read as as read that he's reading, um, but he's asked me not to record it in his book, so I won't because I don't want to remove that, you know, intrinsic motivation. So. Again, could you talk to, to that, the difference between intrinsic and what we call extrinsic motivation yeah, sure. and we what we can do?
1: Very, yeah, for sure. is yeah. uh, obviously very enlightened to make that call himself because uh, unfortunately for most kids, especially younger kids, they, um, they just buy into what the teacher says they need to do and then they start to focus on on filling in their logbook or getting their certificate for having read 20 books or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that just on that note, or sort of defining the intrinsic, extrinsic difference, the, um, that reading is, can be the biggest pleasure and joy in life. And you don't want to make it seem like homework and extra work for kids. It's, it, it needs to be, if a, if a child is not reading, maybe they haven't found a story they like yet. Or maybe their ability is, doesn't match the stories they're really interested in, in which case maybe they could read along to an audiobook or find, or maybe they need some extra support in terms of understanding written language or uh, decoding that, or maybe with their, you know, helping them with their working memory issue, maybe they have some dyslexia or, or some other difficulty. But certainly you're not going to encourage the joy of reading by forcing a child to read X number of books or 20 minutes a night or whatever it it might be. I I hate that idea I must say. Um, So moving on to that and, and very much related distinction between intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. So when we're intrinsically motivated, our reason for doing something comes from within the task. So we do it because the task is in itself intrinsically interesting is interesting in itself not because of what it leads to and it's intrinsically rewarding so we find pleasure and joy from actually just doing the task so for example me I love to paint and so I can I find no one has to pay me to paint I don't want a gold sticker for painting I don't want someone to grade my painting I just enjoy painting Um, I like catching up with my friends I don't expect them to pay me to catch up with them I just actually want to catch up with them and in fact if they said thanks for hanging out with me and having dinner. Here's a gold pen and a certificate. I I would think that the world had gone mad, but the world has gone mad in our schools because that's exactly what we're doing. So intrinsic motivation is the best sort of motivation you can have because that says that you are engaged and enthused and energized and um, attached to the things that you do in your day-to-day life. In contrast, extrinsic motivation is motivation that we have means that the reason we have for doing something is because it gives us a reward that is extrinsic to the task so i don't enjoy loading the dishwasher that's not intrinsically interesting of itself but it means that i can end up with a clean kitchen which i like and i benefit from so the reward i have is is comes the benefit comes from something that is not within the task itself, but the task leads to. So there's various types of extrinsic motivation, and certainly they're not all bad. So, but the the better types of extrinsic motivation are those where there is still some autonomy at play. We still have some autonomous control. So if I set myself a task um, to do, because it's gonna give me some extrinsic benefit, that I personally feel is gonna benefit me and I have selected myself, then that's a self-regulated extrinsic reward. So if I, for example, I'd know, say I choose to study um, uh, chemistry because I, I want to go on and, and do medicine at university and I might not enjoy all those sort of like a, know, organic chemistry formulas and things, and but I, I'm motivated to study hard because I have set myself the goal of wanting to do medicine, that's my goal. I still feel I've got autonomy over that whole process. But if we do something because someone else set us an extrinsic um, reward, for example, the teacher said, you know, I'm gonna give you a grade A if you work really hard or for a younger child, maybe I'm gonna give you a certificate or a glitter pen or a token or whatever it might be. Then we, that, is, that is really unhealthy because we tend to um, feel that we have a, lot, a loss of autonomy. We're doing something on the basis of somebody else's judgment of how good or bad it is. So we don't feel we have much ownership over that. Um, it's also bad for our relationships with the person who's being the judge of us because they've said, I'm the judge of you. That sets up a really unhealthy power balance. They're saying, I'm gonna tell you how good this is, you know, Anna. And, and, and it can be ridiculous, you know, especially when it gets into the sort of social emotional Behaviors, because who's to say that being kind to another child is worth a glitter pen? You know, I mean, it, it just is nonsensical. Um, and and so, so that's sort of, and in terms of our competency, very often we feel a lack of competency because we didn't win the prize, we didn't win the award, um, or we won it once, but we didn't win it a second time. So as soon as we start using extrinsic rewards in an attempt to motivate young people. We are taking away their opportunity to be autonomously motivated in what they do. And that means we're also diminishing their opportunity to find well-being in what they do. And absolutely, when they win the prize or the award, they might have a moment of true elation because prizes and awards, grade A's, positive feedback is really, really lovely. But it's a momentary, a momentary thing. It's not really going our overall well-being is still going to be diminished. And and I think that then teachers will be or parents will be confused. They'll think, gosh, you know, I've been like giving my child all the prizes and ticking, putting star charts on stars on the chart on the wall and been doing all this stuff, and yet my child has, has never been so demotivated or they're behaving really badly because they're pushing against all that control. Of course they are, because they wanna be autonomous beings, um, learning to be self-directed and self-determined. And and I think that sort of the last thing I'll say about that, because I know this stuff is really challenging for many of us who were brought up with extrinsic rewards, who have used them in our parenting as much as maybe as educators. Um, And and that is to think about our overall aims for young people. Um, Because all of this stuff tends to come from the 1980s in part, where we there was a lot of uh, interest in behavioural psychology and in in thinking that gosh we can train dogs, for example, to and my, my dog does really well with extrinsic rewards. You know, she he's really good at doing all sorts of tricks if I feed him little tempting treats. Um, but the thing about my dog that's very different to my children, one of the many differences, is that I want him to be obedient, and I want him to be under my control uh, for his entire life. Whereas my children, I want them to grow up, leave home, make autonomous, independent decisions without me there. I want them to make good choices, not because I'm going to reward them or be there to say good job, but because they feel that that's the right thing to do for themselves because they're they're doing things that fit with their own value systems and because they have a sense of who they are. And and that to me is is massively important for everyone to understand. so I'd throw those sticker t- charts in the bin and, and start looking at how you can meet young people's needs. That, that would be my big sort of like take-home line from all of that. Um, but if you feel that you must use rewards in some way, um, then I would say a couple of things. I would say firstly, be very careful that you know to consider if you need why you need to use them. What's going on with the kids in your care that you feel that you need to use them? Are there some needs that are not being met for these kids? And if you do use them, just try and keep them as close as you can to that autonomous end of motivation by ensuring that at the very least, that kids might have some say in, in the goals that they're setting, that the rewards are relevant to the task, you know, so that for example, if you must give a prize for reading, make sure it's an extra book from the library, then make it a slice of pizza or a pizza party. And please, please, I'd say to people, don't use prizes and rewards, extrinsic forms of validation for social and emotional well-being. So it's, you know, we've always done this, I think in, I'd say I grew up in England in an education system where there were plenty of prizes and awards for academic learning, um, good or bad, but there were none for social and emotional learning. And, you know, it's a great, great thing that we now consider social and emotional, learning and social-emotional competency to be a part of education, to be so important. But that's so misfired by the way that we think that we should hand out awards and rewards for people's social-emotional behaviour. And, and I feel that that's going to do nothing but create um, a more mentally unhealthy world. So I'll climb down
0: from the soapbox, but yes. But that's... Oh, no, I do I know. I so agree with you. I just, you know, ever since the boys were little, I've always said please don't do not associate what he's doing with his how clever he is or not. So, you know, the fact that he's done the jigsaw really quickly doesn't mean he's clever. Please don't tell him that. Because you know, that distinction between behavior and identity. Because to me that I see its in young people who arrive with an identity of I'm an A star pupil and then you put them in a different context, different environment that is more challenging and they're surrounded by other A star pupils, some of whom have more knowledge than them. And suddenly they're completely flawed and they don't know how to handle the situation because that A star identity is almost like wiped away, taken away from them.
1: I, th- I hear what you're saying, but here I, I'd say that, you know, I think that if you want to celebrate in, in the successes of your child and you want to say, wow, that, you know, you just didn't done that whole 500 piece jigsaw, that's amazing. And, yeah. and feel that and you want to celebrate that. That is absolutely fine. The problem comes if you are, tr- if you are using praise as a way to garner compliance. If you're like saying, or, uh, uh, um, look everybody, um, you know, sort of, um, Tom's just completed the jigsaw and sat quietly and really persevered. isn't that great? Because really you're not celebrating Tom's success with Tom. What you're doing is you're telling everyone else what behavior is expected of them or what you would like to ideally see. But I, uh, but I also think, I think it's okay to say that's fantastic as well. Um, Uh, in in that sense but it's also I think what you're saying when you're tying into that clever not clever thing obviously you're you're thinking a little bit about fixed growth mindset here Um, but I think what what I would say is rather than necessarily thinking about fixed or growth mindset which I feel is an idea fraught with difficulties to be honest with you I'd be thinking it's more about again checking in with what our overall aims are and that is to support independent self-determined beings so the most useful thing we can do would be to maybe say something like oh what did you enjoy most about doing that jigsaw or i noticed that you did a lot of blue sky there how was that with all that blue sky when all the pieces look the same or what was the trickiest bit and so what you're doing there is you're helping someone to find the and recognize and acknowledge the intrinsic rewards that they've got the challenges they've met and overcome and to to be their their own person, rather than thinking that this is an opportunity for you to give your judgment. I know I grade like an A plus, or I I, I, I now proclaim you a clever person. So the the problem with that in that sense is that you're giving your judgment, aren't you? And you're saying that that's what's important. And it's not really, we're there to sort of cheer our young people on to to be their own critics, their self-critics, and we're there to guide them for sure and set boundaries but not to, to judge
0: them. Yeah, totally. I just, yes, yes, I, I agree. And I just, I love the, you know, when I'm, when I'm really proud of what they've done, I, and, you know, it's sort of, noticing how they, they're they really proud as well it's like celebrating both of us for that for that and then like you said asking him or well, them what they enjoyed the most like in their football match for example on Saturday I was asking my youngest you know what was the best part of that match what did you enjoy the most um and watching him come you know that's what I love is watching them come alive when they They've, they've hit on that particular thing they love, like we all do, I guess.
1: Yeah, and they relive it, and they're all animated and excited about that. And that, that's, um, and that story they're telling you, they'll then, then anchors that memory, that anecdotal memory, um, and becomes more a part of who they are. So that's mm-hmm. so important. And you're also saying, I, I noticed, I noticed. You know, so it's, you can really take, pay no attention to something someone's done and, and say so that's fantastic, can't you? But but to actually point out that you saw how, I don't know, you, you, you know, you son managed to get possession of the ball five minutes before the whistle went, and that they're details, aren't they? They're details that you could only be aware of if you were actually paying attention. And that's what kids, uh, they revel in that. They revel in the fact that you're taking an interest in them uh, much more than, you've, than your overall judgment of how they've done, it. yeah.
0: Amazing. Right, so I'm conscious of time and I'm also conscious that we have not spoken about the positive you know, the creating positive, positive schools yeah. um, and there's there's a part of me that almost wants you to come back and talk about the whole positive schools and you know, what needs to be done there but could you could you mention something about creating positive schools because we've talked about, okay all the contributing factors to the, the, the fact that young people are experiencing challenges with their well-being. How do we contribute with positive schools?
1: Okay, so the so the I so I think it's really important to understand from the outset that if we want to create a, a better educational world that's going to involve having people on board with that process or change involves people and so any process of change needs to take to, to consider how do we get enthusiasm, energy, buy-in from the people who are going to be involved in that process. And so I really like a sort of an, a, the appreciative inquiry approach to change because that's very much about uh, um, ensuring that the people involved in change are, are energized by that and, and are not threatened by that, but see that as a way of progressing and moving forward rather than having to do a U-turn or, or looking and thinking, oh my gosh, everything I've done is, is wrong. And so, so with that, within that framework, um, very briefly, it, it's about building on what works. It's about, I would say uh, some good starting points for any school or any classroom would be to start by considering what what goes really well? When, when do I see um, kids that are feeling connected and, um, are really on board with the plan that they're energized that they they're showing they're demonstrating motivation with their behavior that they're engaged um, they're calm within that but I'm confident when do I when do I see these behaviors that I'm really wanting to see in young people what's working really well and it could be anything from a sort of a small story of an act of kindness to to a, a big sort of um, project that you had in place that, that just worked really well because of the way that the kids were working together and these pockets of great things happen in every school but are often not given the the space that they need not expressed and shared and uh, once they are shared I think that it not only it starts to get people feeling energized oh there's good stuff happening here but then they can be built upon and they can be broadened and shared and so rather than trying to solve what's wrong, you're trying to build what's right and what you focus on grows. Um, So it's sort of taken that move forward. So the idea of a positive school, it's the the Positive Schools Initiative, the Positive Schools Conferences, and now Positive Schools Online from from Monday, October the 26th, which is very exciting. Um, These are people coming to offer um, ideas, talks, having conversations. I'm running a whole series of critical cool conversations um, on the site that are unpacking ideas of well-being and, and looking at, at everything from what is mindfulness. You know, um, are we doing it right? What What does it actually do? And can we actually get people on mass to, to practice mindfulness? Um, to looking at behavior management, to looking at mental health, to looking at contextual well-being, to looking at, at character, to looking at, at, at all of these growth mindsets. What is that? Is, is that? Surely we all have that to some degree, or don't we? Can we change it? Um, to looking at all these sort of ingredients and facets of, of that lead to, uh, come under this umbrella of, of well-being, but also motivation and engagement. And we're putting these online um, in a way that is about asking, how can we progress? How can we grow? How can we look at uh, building a better future rather than continually saying, what's the problem? What needs to change? And so I feel it's a sort of, it's a really sort of energizing, inspiring sort of initiative for me uh, to be around all of these energized, inspiring people as as much as it is informative. Okay. So if anyone starting out on that journey or thinking about what, what's the next step or, or how can we sort of maybe go in a slightly different direction, I would really recommend that they have a look at the positive schools online and to fill themselves with some ideas. But beyond that, start thinking about within our own school because it's a very personal thing, personal journey. What's working, what can we build on? And, and but very finally, I have to say, because it's so important for any school thinking about wellbeing Consider staff wellbeing um, because I, I feel that, that it's, it's very difficult to support the wellbeing of others if you're feeling overloaded, overwhelmed, and stressed yourself. And that's particularly important in 2020 when, you know, it would have been offline, online, face to face, back online, <laughs> a combination. Of There's just been so much happening yeah. for educators, and there is at the best of times. I have to say I feel that a real positive in 2020 is, is the fact that I feel educators have never been so appreciated from parents' point of view anyway. Yes, that's, <laughs> that, that's true. That's true. <laughs> pulling their hair out when they're, and they're trying to support two children at home. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. But we, don't, we really need to, to pay more attention to staff wellbeing, to educator wellbeing, and that's not some add-on or luxury. That's fundamentally important if we want to have educators who can effectively support the education of young people.
0: Yes, I so agree because I will often say to my colleague you can't pour from an empty cup.
1: Absolutely. And, yes. You know. Yes.
0: That's
1: true. It is so true. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and in in many ways because well-being is caught not taught in so many ways that you know if you have an educator who is energized and motivated and wants to be there and they have capacity uh, to build those relationships in a really healthy way with all the kids then the kids are motivated and engaged and and they'll say this is a great teacher and I, i like this subject and they won't really you know it's hard to pinpoint why that is but a lot of that might simply be because they have a really socially emotionally competent person guiding them on that journey
0: that is awesome. You know, Helen, I would love to have you back on again to talk more in more details about uh, positive schools, if you would. Um, I've, yeah. I've, I've loved every minute. It's just so <laughs> awesome. speaking to you. Um, yeah, just absolutely everything you say just so resonates with um. With what I I really really believe in, so thank you so much for your time today.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Is it well? It's a joy to be able to talk about this topic, and and especially so to someone who is also so much on that same page and um, so interested. So, so thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: Thank you, and I'll definitely ask you to come back again if you're if you're willing to talk about positive schools. We'll, we'll
1: get our online platform launched. Yeah, sleep again and then yeah but absolutely and if, in in uh, give it give it a month or a few weeks time that would be a, a great opportunity so yeah,
0: Amazing. yeah wonderful thank you so much helen
1: all right thank you